You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy! Everyone in this audience knows I love animals, but I especially love dogs. And having had the pleasure of reading a galley before release of our guest book and submitting praise for it, I wrote of Elena Manis's book about her dog Brio and their shared life in Soul Dog, A Journey into the Spiritual Life of Animals, that, quote, Elaine Embryo's story showcases the precious trans species adoration and communication in life and the afterlife between a woman and her dog. Discovering Brio's creative and original mind, as Elena put it, Manis's own testimony, both reflective and humorous, weaves science and personal experience into a kind of Tao of dog. She shows us how animal can help us learn to sit, walk, stay, and lie down in reciprocal respect, love, and joy. This book I wrote sparkles with delight, unquote. Elena, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, and thanks for that lovely endorsement as well. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, I, I'm not an impartial cheerleader here. <laughs> I'm already a fan, both of the uh, subject matter and your beautiful book, because you've done something so many of us have hoped to see who have been in sort of the biz of sentient consciousness that you wrote a story of your own journey. So let's start there. A little bit about your own career life as an investigative journalist, documentary maker, more, because that was really the kind of the backdrop to the time period in which you met your wonderful dog, Brio. Absolutely. Well, as you say, I was having a quite a good career as a television documentary director, producer, writer, and traveling a lot and very, very busy, high-pressure job. But I, uh, at a certain point, was going through sort of a midlife crisis. Um, a relationship had ended not too well, and then I had a near-fatal car crash on a film shoot, and all of this put together kind of um, made me stop and ask if there was maybe there should be more to my life than just working like a demon and getting into car crashes. And I'd always loved animals as a child, but you know we had cats, and I did think of them really as as pets, as as many people did and still do, as sort of under our command and there to provide comfort and unconditional love and but really under our control and um, sort of subjective beings if you will um, but I decided I would get a puppy um, to fill this the gap that I felt in my life at that point and I was a quite a hard driving type a person at that at that time I was all wrapped up in my career and um, I had a reputation for toughness, I think. Um, well, I know in terms of how I dealt with other people that I worked with, I was very ambitious and um, had high standards both for myself and others. I'm surprised and... we didn't meet in all those years. <laughs> I go, oh, wow, who does that sound like? <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, people who knew me thought um, and said often that I was not doing a rational thing to get a puppy, mm-hmm. um, you know, how was I going to have time? And, you know, I think they worried about how I would maybe treat the puppy or, you know, would I give it enough time and care? And um, many people thought I was really crazy and 
frankly, I did in a way also, but I kind of kept going and um, made the decision. So I did go get a standard poodle puppy. And talk to us a little bit, because I I thought one of the beautiful things you said early on in your book, and we can flush that out a little bit more, is that, you know, after you got to know Brio, you asked not if this was the right dog, but if you were the right owner. Absolutely. So, you know, I brought him home, and um, pretty much from the beginning, it was not, the relationship was not what I had expected. You know, I had expected I would get trainers, and they would teach Rio to obey me and, you know, things would be pretty smooth and my life would continue pretty much as it had without some very much disruption. Well, and and the puppy would indeed, Brio would give me, you know, that unconditional love and, you know, be a cuddly little puppy that would just hallmark comfort for me. Right, the hallmark <laughs> puppy. <laughs> right. Well, things were not going that way in the beginning at all. And, um, he was very independent-minded. He was very confident. He had a very, very strong spirit. Um, he didn't listen to me very much, despite the trim. The training helped, but I, I just didn't feel I was communicating with him. I really thought that, as you said, I mean, I didn't talk dog, and I didn't know how to deal with him. I didn't understand him, and, you know, I was really quite despairing, actually, in mm-hmm. many ways. So one day, actually, and I was screaming for him in the park to come back. He would run away, and I, I was walking backwards, calling him, and found myself stepping over backwards into a, into a boat pond, which wasn't very deep, actually, um, but very humiliating and kind of a metaphor for the the way I felt that I was really had stepped over the edge of an abyss somehow, and I didn't know what I'd gotten myself into. In over your head, as they say. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And and so, you know, you describe these things, and I think one of the beauties of the journey you share with readers is is this weaving of um, how far we've come in our scientific understanding and our real study of animal, and yet here you were, a first-time dog owner, and if anybody in the audience has never owned a dog and especially has never owned a puppy, it is really not a lot different than having a newborn. It is a 24-7 job in the beginning um, or, you know, it or it doesn't turn out well, put it that way. If you don't put the time in in the beginning, you will be so regretful that you didn't. So talk to us about how having this puppy and having to change your schedule and walking a dog in New York City and your career, you know, not being, you couldn't just focus on that anymore. You had the sentient being you had to take care of. How much did having Brio in the beginning in your life change how you even looked at what you were doing? Oh, well, you know, I thought my life had been invaded. I mean, when I (laughs) could focus on work, you know, it was a relief to go to work, really, frankly. It was terrible to say, but, you know, I I could get away from him for a while. I mean, I can't believe I felt this way, but I did. I just wanted to get back to my normal, ordinary work life, you know. But, you know, as you said, it was pretty much impossible. And I I probably didn't give him all the attention that he should have had. You know, I left him in a crate all day. I had dog walkers coming in. um, And, you know, it was fortunate in retrospect that he was such a confident, um, really wise puppy deep down that, you know, he dealt with it. 
Mm-hmm. But I was not dealing with it very well. Well, you know, and, and there is something to be said for lack of experience. It's like when you're a new mother and you take home your child and it's a newborn and nobody's told you anything. I mean, it's you don't learn these things by watching TV. You you know, you actually have to have the experience. And I can remember when I had so many dogs at one point um, that leaving the house was like without one of them. It was like, oh, my God. It was like I can remember it was getting out of the house without the toddler. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> now, you comment somewhere along the way that Brio had complete control over his life without needing to control his life. And I thought it was such a beautiful um, insight about one of the things canines offer us. Well, that's true. I mean, he, as I said, he was so self-confident and, you know, comfortable in his own skin that, you know, nothing really fazed him. And But he also had this ability to kind of, I mean, he had his own mind. Like I said, he would run off if he felt like it when he was a puppy and, you know, disobey me. But, um, you know, he pretty much went with the flow. He coped with the small apartment and the city and the noises and everything. And, and uh you know, he wasn't nervous. You could just tell that he knew that he could handle whatever came along. So as as you became a dog lover and a dog talker, I guess, and I almost hesitate even myself to say owners because I always feel like the dogs own me more than I own them. Well, exactly. I don't, I like, don't like to say that anymore, but yeah. at the time I did, you know. Yeah. No, it's it's a different kind of reciprocal love. It's you, it's no more than owning a child. You don't really own yeah, your dog. You own me as much yeah. as I own him. <laughs> no <out>. question <laughs> about it. So you tell extraordinary stories throughout the book, but I think it's important to let our audience appreciate that you had this gradual introduction into animal communication through trainers and then later through animal communicators and psychics and then your own experiences. But talk to us a bit about how that journey into this other stratosphere of reality was so different from what you had believed. Well, you know, I was, you know, a trained skeptic as a journalist, not to believe anything unless it was kind of proven by multiple sources and empirical fact. Um, But I was so frustrated with well, you know, the lack of a connection with Brio that I had kind of heard. I didn't really know anything about it, but I, I guess I had heard that there were people who called themselves animal communicators or animal psychics who said they could tell you what a dog or another animal was thinking or feeling. So, you know, I was used to doing research for work, and so I did a little research and found this communicator in California who had a good reputation, so I called her up and asked if she'd read Brio um, over the phone. But she'd never met me or Brio, of course, and I didn't tell her anything about him or me except for his name and his breed. And she she gave this remarkably accurate reading over the phone across the country about describing my apartment and how Brio navigated within it around the furniture, sort of really rang true as his point of view and the streets he liked to walk on and the neighborhood. She described the streets accurately. Um, she said things about his personality, about me that really rang true. So I was pretty stunned. I mean, I can't say I, I was a believer in telepathic interspecies communication at that point, but I really had to sort of sit up and say, Ooh, I mean, what is going on here? I mean, how could she have known all that? So that, you know, tweaked my interest, and I began 
talking to some other communicators to sort of see if they agreed with the first one more or less. And then I actually persuaded the network I was working for to let me do a couple of stories looking at animal intelligence and including sections on animal communication telepathy. So those were pretty interesting also. Well, that you know, that's one of the beautiful things about individual journeys is had you not been, you know, in that career, you wouldn't have benefited so many thousands of other people. Um, and, and I love that you shared two stories. There was one about Diane Sawyer's dog, you know, as you went forward in your research. And um, and then this extraordinary reading of a horse in the Belmont Stakes. Maybe you could share those two stories and then we'll take a break. Sure. Well, first of all, um, I was doing a, a documentary about animal, the amazing animal mind when Diane Sawyer was the correspondent. So part of that was about I decided to have a psych, animal psychic read Diane's dog. So I flew. We flew the psychic across the country. It was the same one who had first read Bria. Right. I flew her from California to New York. And first we taped Diane's dog at her home. With Diane was not present. We just taped the dog walking around the yard to see what he did and in the house what he did. And then the psychic, the animal psychic, met dog and Diane in a hotel room, not knowing anything about him again except for his name and his breed. And she took the dog into a, a private, uh, the bedroom of the hotel suite for about an hour, as I remember, and came out and gave a report. And he was, this was not my dog, of course, so I couldn't testify to everything she said. But she said one thing, um, that the dog was scared. He remembered spinning and falling. And Diane did say that he had indeed fallen into a swimming pool when he was a puppy. Mm-hmm. And then um, the psychic described what the dog did in Diane's, at Diane's home, in the yard, in the home. And we ran what she said against the videotape that we had taken, and it was right on. I mean, she described how the dog went among some trees and down to a stream in the yard and what he did in the house and how he went around the furniture and you could see in the video it was exactly what he did. You know, so it's was- it's an interesting phenomenon. I'm also an animal communicator and a dog reader and a wild animal seeker and whatever. And I have to say, having I used to work with babies and humans, and I find animals to be so much easier. I mean, babies are easy, but humans are difficult as they grow up. But right. I have found that the difference between, let's say, the human species and the animal kingdom, let's just say all the animal kingdom, is the animal kingdom communicates so cleanly and so clearly, and there's so little psychobabble. Whereas, well, that's what I've heard from other communicators. It's that, really you know, we true. We humans have all this noise. That we gets do. We humans have so many layers of so much complication and so much self-deception and then other deception. But animals tell you exactly what they see, what they feel, what they think, what they know. And um, they're very funny, though. It's not to say they don't have extraordinary senses of humor and tell jokes and dress up and really strange stuff in the spirit body. But um, And so when I read your book, I, I just love your book, Elena. I just, oh, thank you. I feel like you have um, your journey with Brio was not just for yourselves alone, but for the world, and and that's a beautiful addition. So well, I'll tell you what we're going to. Oh, it's just beautiful what the two of you have brought to all of us. Um, we're going to take a break. We'll come back, and then we'll come back to the Belmont Steak story, and then we'll move further into the journey with Brio himself. Okay, great. 
This is Kevin Schneider, Executive Director of the Non-Human Rights Project, the only civil rights organization in the United States working to establish fundamental rights for non-human animals. You can find out more about us at nonhumanrights.org. And you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Indeed, Kevin's work and the Non-Human Animal Project is so essential. And our guest, Elena Manis, I saw that you you mentioned that in your book. Uh, Yes, I really, you know, there certainly is a shift going on, I think, in terms of uh, more recognition of animal rights and that they're they're not our non-human animals are not our inferiors, but rather at least our equals, and I think maybe often our superiors. I believe there are teachers, that they, they bring us such great gifts and um, um, can really transform our lives if we're open to listening to them. Yeah, I agree with you. And I was so glad you mentioned J. Allen Boone, who really helped me as a young person when I could only think that Dr. Doolittle and Pippi Longstocking were like, (laughs) they were the best in the world. Who could have a life better than Pippi Longstocking? And then I came across J. Allen Boone. And in the 50s, he wrote about his experience, not just with his film dog, a shepherd named Strongheart, but ants and communicating with everything. So as you, and we'll come back to the Belmont Stakes, because I'm sure somebody in the audience is going, wait, you haven't done that yet. Um, but I wanted, I want, because I think it's the most essential part of your journey, is what a change your life um, underwent and what a change your perspective about the world has taken. And, and so maybe you can spend a little bit of time and tell us about that. Uh, sure. Well, certainly um, during his physical life, um, my connection with Brio developed into such a close bond um, with the help of the animal communicators, but um, he was just a a magical being, um, which uh, other people recognized that he had a a wisdom about him, and um, he seemed connected to something larger than himself, um, some other dimension, and he, he taught me things like to remain in the moment. He used to pull me into flower shops, for as one example, and he would just sit there. He didn't want treats or attention. He would just sit there smelling the flowers. And, oh, lovely. You know, I mean, it was... Who would have guessed that a dog would teach me to stop and smell the roses? But, mm-hmm. you know, in a way, it's a cliche, that lesson, but it was so meaningful to me. And he was, you know, he taught me... You know, he got sick at certain points. He didn't have the most perfect health through his life, but he never let it bother him. His spirit was always strong. And, you know, I I wanted to be more like him. I wanted his strength and his spirit. And then the greatest gift, in a way, from this relationship came after his physical passing, which, of course, is devastating. It's so hard to physically you know, be with an, an beloved being, you know, that we share our lives with and and lose them physically. And, of course, I, um, I experienced that grief like anybody else. But I remained in touch with the animal communicators, and especially with their help, um, I continued to get amazing messages from Bria that totally convinced me that his spirit had endured and he was with me. Um, um his consciousness was still there, and that, and of course, to believe that means changing one's whole perspective about 
existence itself and reality itself. Yeah. There is consciousness and soul, and that survives physical death. But, um, but these, you know, we can talk more about it later, but the reports, you know, from Brio, and clearly from Brio, because it was so specific about what I was doing, um, what I ate, where I was, um, uh, things that the animal communicators could never possibly know, and I didn't say anything. Right. Um, they were completely out of the blue. It wasn't things I was thinking about. They would describe where Bria was in my house and describe the layout of my office precisely and where Brio was in it um, at that moment, you know, and describing wood trim on the floor, which, mm-hmm. you know, I never even looked at. Mm-hmm. I don't remember even observing the wood trim in my house. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think it's it's a little hard for me to to relate to people who make this quantum leap at some point from what I guess for simplification, the old paradigm to the new paradigm, because I sort of grew up believing in the new paradigm before I knew it existed and had experiences that were weird and, you know, have always sort of gravitated this way and have had the benefit of interviewing sort of the who's who of the who's who in in these fields. Um, And so that's, I think, another reason I'm so deeply appreciative of your book, because sometimes those of us who have been in this work for 40 years or more, you get a little jaded. It gets a little difficult sometimes um, to express to others who maybe haven't yet had the experience how beautiful an experience it is. And um, I know you mentioned Kanzi, which was interesting to me, who's a bonobo, um, who um, Sue Rumbell didn't teach him directly, but tried to teach his mother, Matata, how to use to communicate. And as you rightly pointed out, Kanzi um, learned how to do that. But you know, there's an interesting story you may not know. Before I wrote my own book, I interviewed Sue, and then Matata showed up in her astral body in my bedroom. And then we began to have a um, conscious communication. I recorded 30 conversations, and then I wrote about it and included her stories in my book. But her opinion of Kanzi was she goes, she didn't celebrate his intelligence at all. She said he didn't have manners. He didn't know how to behave as a as a bonobo because, you know, his father wasn't allowed to stay with them, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I thought it was so wonderful you mentioned him. I just had to say that. All right. So you also bring up people like Rupert Sheldrake's work of more resonance and this notion of non-locality and resonance-related theory. So having sort of globbed that all together, and our audience has heard us talk about this stuff for decades now, how has this whole world perspective changed your world and your life in the world? Well, um, I guess in short that I don't take material reality for the be-all and end-all. You know, I mean, it's I, I cannot have gone through this experience and not be convinced that there's there are things going on here that I can't explain by ordinary means, by you know materialistic, rational Western science and empirical evidence. Um, it's coming from another dimension, another reality that, um, as I call, say in the book, you know, the world of the invisible, mm-hmm. um, and to have come from being a com- really a committed skeptic about all that to right. being convinced that this dimension exists, that I can't deny it. And now, of course, I embrace it. I mean, right. 
Um, that's a huge change. Yeah, may you be really influential in the media, please. <laughs> yeah. From your lips. <laughs> Bring it on. Bring it on, <laughs> Elena. No, it's it because I, you know, I think how many how many millions of people would benefit by having confirmed what they experience but don't know other millions are experiencing it or they can't talk to their family about it or they can't talk to their spouse about it or their child has an experience and nobody understands it. Um, I loved it. You quoted Albert Einstein, who has commented, quote, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. I thought that was one of the most beautiful summaries I've seen of our complex. Yeah, it's a wonderful quote. Um, I think it's very true. And I was certainly an example of, you know, somebody who's very dependent on the rational mind. I mean, that's who I thought I was. Mm -hmm. So this journey has really changed, obviously, as I said, my, my own identity, how I think of myself and, you know, other people and life and talk to us a bit about because um, not all of our audience knows about distant healing for animals even though we've done shows they may have missed them or they may not believe in it but you you mentioned that at one point you know brio wasn't healthy um, you took him to the vet they didn't know what to do he couldn't walk uh, share with us what happened yeah I mean he was only about eight and one day he just collapsed on the street and couldn't walk so of course I was desperate I took him to my vet, and, you know, there ended up being weeks of every test known to man, and, and you know, finally, you know, it wasn't as hard, it wasn't ortho, it wasn't anything orthopedic, finally, neurologist did all these kind of scans, and he was diagnosed with a, a degenerative neurological thing, sort of what they call the ALS for dogs, um, uh, degenerative myelopathy, and the verdict from the Western doctors was that he probably, you know, was never going to walk normally again, much less run. And this was, he loved to run. He was such a an active dog. He just loved to run in the wind. And, you know, my heart was broken. I mean, I was just devastated. And, you know, I, I had um, somebody mentioned that a business acquaintance of mine um, might know somebody who I, I could talk to who did this thing called energy healing. I mean, I really had no idea what they were talking about at that point, but I thought, what do I have to lose? Um, so I called this woman who, she's an animal communicator, but she also um, does energy healing. That She can somehow feel what's going on in an animal's body physically and work with the energy and shift things around. So, you know, this was a long-distance call. Again, she'd never met me, never met Brio, didn't know anything. I just briefly described that, you know, he couldn't walk and um, gave his name, I guess, in the breed. And after, I guess, feeling him, you know, there was a lot of silence on the phone, she finally said, um, there's nothing wrong with his spine, which the neurologist had said, um, and I'm going to work with him today and a few more times, um, but you will have your dog back. He's He's going to be able to walk and run again, and that turned out to be true. Um, we had several more years of very active life together. It, was, it seemed like a miracle to me, really. 
such a beautiful story. It gives me an opportunity to come back to the story we haven't shared that I thought was worth talking about, that, that people at a distance, when they talk to an animal, don't need to be in the animal's presence, um, and that they can learn things that even those most intimate with the animal will not believe, like this horse at the Belmont Stakes. Yes. Well, this was back um, relatively early on in my journey when I was kind of doing research and, you know, this story for the network was part of my research. Right. So I persuaded them to let me have an animal psychic um, talk to one of the horses entered in that year's Belmont Stakes, which as many people know is the third leg of the thoroughbred horse racing triple crown. And so I, I arranged for the psychic to become the only trainer of any horse in the race who would allow me to do this was the trainer of the longest shot in Belmont Stakes history, <laughs> 70 to 1, 7 zero to 1. Wow. So I was not thrilled at this, but I had no choice. So <laughs> we went ahead. So we go out with the film crew um, to the racetrack with the animal psychic, and she meets the horse, whose name was Sarava, and there's quite a few minutes of silence, which the cameras were rolling, and I was, you know, thinking this is going to be a disaster, and Sarava's sitting there, standing there munching hay, and nothing much was happening. So finally the psychic says, uh, he says he's going to win. Uh, now, this was the year that a very famous horse war emblem was supposed right. to win the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness, and he was supposed to win the Belmont and the Triple Crown. So the trainer looked completely shocked. We all sort of either were silently snickering or sort of in a state of shock. But the right. trainer sort of plaintively asks, well, why does he think he's going to win? Right. Um, and Dawn, the animal psychic, who's so gifted, I have since learned, um, says very confidently, he knows he can do it and he wants to do it for you, his trainer, and the owner. So, you know, with that, we sort of wrapped up, <laughs> and um, I'm trying to think how I'm ever going to do this story and make right. something of this. <laughs> so we all go home, and the next day is the race, so I'm sitting at home watching it on TV, and um, every, all the talk is about War Emblem, and the announcer, you know, all the focus in the beginning of the race is on War Emblem, and no mention, really, of Sarava until the far turn, when... All of a sudden, I hear the announcer start yelling, and Sarava is making a move. He's pulling up. You know, he's passing War Emblem. And then finally, he says, Sarava has won the Belmont Stakes. Unbelievable. Great story. So it was. I mean, I still, when I tell the story, I think, you know, my word, you know. So I was just, you know, I don't know, my jaw literally dropped, <laughs> you know. <laughs> finally, you know, I recovered enough to call Dawn the yeah. It was upstate at her place, and she was not surprised, but she said she was so moved that, you know, she was brought to tears. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Watching him win. And um, so beautiful he, that the horse told her his reason. You know, they don't always tell you everything in their thinking because it could upset somebody. I mean, they're very judicious sometimes, but it's it's such a, a lovely, um, what's the right word, exclamation point to the phenomena. It is. I mean, um, you know, it's still, I mean, on the face of it, it's in, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it's unbelievable that she predicted this. The horse predicted it, and yeah. he actually won. And she said that, you know, she, he told her, you know, 
afterwards, or she heard him say something or felt that he was so proud of what he had done that, you know, he knew he could do it, and, you know, he was proud of, proud that he could do it. It's a beautiful it's so story. Touching. It's just a beautiful story. If you're just joining us, Elena Manis is our guest. Her book, Soul Dog, A Journey into the Spiritual Life of Animals, a Bear and Company 2018 release. Learn more about her work at www.manisproductions, M-A-N-N-E-S productions.com. And we'll be right back. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Eirich, founder of the Earth Fire Institute Wildlife Sanctuary and Retreat Center, just west of Antietam National Park. Our mission is to expand a sense of community to truly include all life in our thinking and what a difference that would make in our decision-making and in the state of the Earth. You can learn more about us at www.earthfireinstitute.org. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zahara Hieronymus. So coming back to our discussion um, overall about your life with Brio, I want to be sure we talk about his passing and then the afterlife communication. So maybe you can describe for us um, that process. Yes, well, um, his passing um, was, as I've said, you know, for all of us, it's, of course, a very difficult moment. Um, I had arranged, I finally realized that he was really suffering. He was and uh, really the point had come where he was having seizures a lot. Um, So I had arranged for the vet to come to my house, and I also had one of the animal communicators on the phone with me because I wanted to go through this with him, but I, you know, wanted that support. That's so smart. Also, so I was holding him um, through the the process, and I I had the phone and, and... of my shoulder, and uh, when the final injection went in, um, I felt this amazing kind of like a spiraling sensation or or a vertigo, like I was turning around and around in a centrifuge almost and going up and out, Mm -hmm. and I just held on to Brio. You know, I felt I was going with him somehow. Um, You know, it's an experience I will never, ever forget. But um, the communicator, after it was over, I asked the communicator what that was, if she felt it. And she said, um, yes, that, that was his energy coming, you know, expanding as it left his body. You know, the, the energy compresses in our physical bodies and then expands again when it leaves our bodies. And I totally felt that. Um, and then that was quite... Uh, an amazing experience. And then, as I mentioned earlier, after in the days after and continuing to this day, the messages from Brio, first initially mostly through the communicators, because I was obviously grieving and so distraught, but they continued to give these remarkable reports from Brio that, you know, I, I couldn't question that they came from him because they were so accurate and so you know, things that the communicators couldn't have known in any way. And so clearly were from Brio that just uh, I knew um, without question that, you know, his spirit was and is there. Um, then over the years, over time, I, I'm not an animal communicator, but I am able to connect with Brio directly um, myself more and more. You know, he comes to me in meditation um, not in 
word, so to speak, really, is, you know, the animal communicators translate, but, you know, in a feeling, um, um, just knowing his presence is there or imagery sometimes. So that, as I've said, is just a wonderful, wonderful gift. Yeah, there's a, a lovely man, Rob Gutro, who's who writes about pets and the afterlife. Um, and I had an experience with one of my many dogs, one that I was especially close with, and particularly sm- I've always had big dogs, and then I had some small dogs for about 14 years who were my daughters. I joke I rescued my dogs from my daughter. <laughs> 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 it was a, a little Yorkshire Terrier and a Shih Tzu. And I've always had big labs and Pyrenees and shepherds, you know, big dogs. Um, but these two little dogs for 14 years were my daily go-everywhere-be-all. And when they both passed on one after the other every year, I, there's still grief. I mean, people always say, oh, you'll get over it. Well, I, I have not. Um, and I have found that with a small dog, they're like they're part of your body. They were on the bed, you know, in my lap, in the car seat. You know, it's like everything was so physically intimate that when they're gone, it was like part of my body was gone too. It's, um, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. So I, I'm right with you, and I think everybody in our audience who has loved a dog or loved a cat or a parrot or a ferret or a snake or a turtle or a fish and has really come into loving rapport knows what this grief is like. So in the afterlife, does Brio talk to you about the afterlife of what a dog's afterlife has been like or what Brio's afterlife, or is he going to come back as a dog or something else? Well, I mean, I can't um, – in the early days after he had passed over the – the communicators sometimes described, you know, that he might have been with, for example, a black cat that maybe he'd known, or that it was he's happy and running, um, which they some some of them have said that's a common experience or report they get from dogs who passed over that you know they're free and yeah. they're no longer sick and they're able to run. Um, I in the beginning I I desperately wanted him to reincarnate. I mean I pretty much believe in reincarnation, um, and I kept searching for some clues to a a puppy you know who yeah. Bria reincarnated yeah. and um, ditto. I, I, actually, <laughs> I, I relate by the way to that one. <laughs> but I, I do I did get another black standard poodle about four months after Bria passed. Uh-huh. Who I love greatly, but I, I don't believe he's Bria reincarnated. He's a very different right. um, spirit, right. soul, and personality in his own right. Um, I mean, maybe Bria will reincarnate. I don't know. Um, you know, it's possible, although... Once I, have I, a, I have a really unusual question for you that maybe you can talk to Brio about is whether or not dogs, um, unlike humans who are individuated souls, I think dogs are individuated personalities and souls, but somehow or other one of my dogs said that if a dog wants to be here, they don't have to reincarnate as a puppy, that they can enter the body of an already living animal. Yeah, one or, one or two of the communicators I talked to said that also. Well, so that gives I, us I a lot of... I don't know if that came from Brio, but... Um... My dog told me that. that from the other side, my little Shih Tzu Oxford. That's what he told me. He said, stop looking. When you find the dog, I'll be there. Wow. And that's what he was trying to tell me, of that, and that, that a dog spirit 
can and and there's certain deceased beings who can do this humans also who can occupy another human's body for whatever reasons they need to from the other side either to help a person live longer to help save a life of a child sometimes you know disincarnate humans will do that but that's what he said to me and um i don't know i haven't talked to other animal communicators about so i'm glad to hear you've heard that from others but yeah, that's what my Shih Tzu Oxford said. He said, "Don't worry about it, Zoe. I'm, I'll find you when you find a dog. I'll be there." Oh, but I really, you know, I I really feel that Brio is with me in spirit. I mean, yeah, no doubt, absolutely. So, so when we sort of take a picture of Elena, your life before, and then your life with Brio, and now your life with your other animals, um, and your and your role in the world in the media. Um, what do you say to anybody in the audience who says, I don't know about animals communicating? Well, I, you know, I'm even friends of mine are saying that all the time. They don't quite buy that, you know, or they mm. don't buy, you know, having somebody else translate a communication from my dog. Um, so that's okay. I mean, I'm not out to persuade anybody, but... You know, maybe for people who are intrigued or interested to hope that they might listen to their animals more and and consider the possibility. But my, in terms of my life, you know, I, I didn't disclose publicly my interest or really increasing conviction in, mm -hmm. you know, an interspecies communication with a dog uh, really until this book has come out um, because I was somewhat worried about, the effect on my career and yeah. some degree still am, but yeah, I no, wouldn't worry I, about it. The world's catching up. I had, you know, <laughs> I committed to writing this book, and you know, that's what I believe, and that's what my experience was and is. So I'm going to tell the truth about it. No, are you, you know, well, people can take it, take it or leave it. You know, it's a beautiful service. You know, even you. As I always tell people when they come to this work new or when they've always felt it and then actually make a commitment to it is none of us owe a justification to anybody. What we have is the pleasure of being grateful for the experience. And that's what I always tell people. You don't need to convince anybody. Just have I mean, the experience. The greatest conviction is going through the experience. Exactly. Oneself, so. that's I mean, but you have to be open to it. Yeah. No, I, I think what what you've done with your and I'm so grateful for the fact that you've come out, as they say, um, <laughs> with the fact that you talk to your dog. Um, it's it's a beautiful legacy. You know, it's been with humankind ever since and always will be because that's what consciousness is and does. It It communicates with each other. So is there anything else you'd like to share with us that I've not touched on and that you've not had a chance to share? Oh, I think we've, we've touched on so much. It's wonderful to talk to you. I mean, I really, I mean, I, there are two big, you know, messages or points, you know, that I hope the book does convey. And one is that, you know, our fellow animals are our teachers and sentient thinking beings with consciousness and souls. And we should be open to that and we should listen to them. And I, I do believe, you know, I hope that the general perspective about non-human animal, animals is shifting. Um, there's a long way to go, but I... Uh, hope it's on the road. And, and secondly, I hope the book um, encourages people to, again, listen to their animals and, and be open to receiving these incredible gifts that they bring us on, and that are transformative. They, Brio transformed my life and 
my um, very profoundly, and I I'm, think that you know all all our animals can do that if we're open to it. Very true. I mean, that's really the heart of my life is the animal world. And um, as much as I work with humans and work on human issues, I have to say my joy is nature and animals. And um, so it's always a pleasure for me to have a guest like you and to meet a woman who, you know, has said, well, I wasn't that way, but I am now. And welcome to the party. (laughs) I just love talking to you. It's a great pleasure. Thank you so much. And to Brio, Brio, baby, you're a guy, all right. He's very funny. He has a very funny dog. Um, and, he and, is. What is he saying? Well, I see him kind of dancing like a cane in top hat. And he's going, and that's the show. And now that's the show. No, he's saying, thank you very much. He absolutely adores you. He says you're doing everything you're supposed to. And aren't we having fun? That's what he says. Aren't we having fun? <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of the hour. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and remember, we do need more love in the world.